pleasing to our Lord. If you have a Bible with you this morning, if you can grab it and open up to Hebrews chapter 8. And remain standing for the public reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Here reads the Word of God. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each other one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant, and immutable word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us your most glorious word. We come before you, God, as needy recipients of your grace. And in your wonderful kindness, we ask that you would please reveal to us the glories of your Son. We ask that you would grant us the ability to give our undivided attention to the proclamation of your word. We ask that you prepare our hearts so that your word may be firmly planted in good soil. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, beloved. By a show of hands, how many of us are old enough to remember that when you purchased a wallet, it used to come with that little plastic insert inside for pictures? Really? That's it. All right, for those of you that are younger, this was actually a thing. Like wallets actually came with an insert. And we would carry around pictures of loved ones. And we would carry them, we'd be reminded of them, we would share those pictures and show others those pictures. But now I know many of us do the same thing with our phones. Don't raise your hand if you still have the wallet with those pictures in there. I'm sure some of you still do. But most of us have those pictures on our phone. And regardless if it is a printed picture or if it's a digital picture, there is something very precious about a picture of somebody that you love dearly. For example, if they're away for an extended amount of time where you cannot contact them, having a picture of them brings comfort and it brings joy. I mean, pictures are a wonderful blessing. But a picture is just a picture. It is not the real thing. 
Imagine having a loved one who is in person, face to face. That is so much better than the picture. To be able to hug them, to speak with them, to to hug, uh, excuse me, to uh, laugh with them. Those things aren't even comparable to looking at a picture. Now, imagine for a moment that you have a picture in your hand of a dearly missed loved one, one whom you do not have opportunity to see often, and you cherish looking at that picture. And as you sit there, let's say, in your house, looking at that picture, imagine they actually walk into the room. They come into your house, and you look up and you see them. How do you respond? You probably jump up in joy, overjoyed, elated that they are there. You grab them and hold them. You might even weep tears of joy because you're so excited to see them. But you would never, ever just keep sitting on the couch staring at the picture. That wouldn't happen. You wouldn't forsake embracing them and instead just choose to have the picture. You wouldn't look up and see them and say, eh, I'm satisfied with the picture. The person is way better than the picture. And imagine them standing there coming to surprise you and you actually sit on the couch going, no, I'm good, I got the picture. What an insult to them. How devastating to them. Now, we would never imagine that something like that would actually occur. But I want to tell you, as we look to the book of Hebrews, something even worse was happening in the lives of the original recipients of the letter of Hebrews. Now, as you recall, this was a group of Jewish believers, a group of believers that had declared their allegiance to Christ, to love him, to serve him, to follow him. And as such, they had left the practices of Judaism. All of those Old Testament religious practices at the temple were now abandoned by these believers. Their faith was in Christ alone. And so all the religious practices of the Old Testament, the routines of the temple sacrifices, the celebration of holy days, all the legitimate practices that were required in the Old Testament... All of those things were pictures that pointed to Christ, that revealed him. That is what they had before. They had pictures prior to coming to Christ. But now they have the person. They have Jesus. From a picture to the person. All of the old covenant practices pointed to Christ. These believers had come to know Jesus, that he was the Messiah, that he is the one true savior of the world, that he is the lamb of God. They had believed in him and trusted in him. But the same group of believers are now being tempted to go back to their old way of life. They wanted to give up the person for the picture. And beloved, this is outrageous. To go backwards. Imagine telling Christ, I'd rather have the things that pointed to you rather than you yourself. To turn away from Christ is to turn away from salvation. It is to turn away from hope. It is to abandon everlasting life. And why would anybody be tempted to turn away from Christ? Well, these believers, we know that they were enduring hardships, persecutions, trials. They were feeling the pressure in their Christian life. And so God is speaking through the author of Hebrews to those Jewish believers to understand if they go back to the old practices, they're exchanging the person for the picture. 
Instead, he wants to encourage them and he wants to encourage us this morning to fix our attention on the blessings of the new covenant in Christ. That is the title of this morning's sermon, The New Covenant in Christ, covering this eighth chapter of Hebrews. This eighth chapter can be broken up into two main parts. There is what we see, the argument for the better priest in verses 1 through 5. And then in the second part, we'll see the better promises in verses 6 through 13. Now, before you go, oh, only two points today, all right. Fair warning, there are various subpoints to each of these points. But let's begin with this text, looking at the better priest. I'm going to read again verses 1 through 5 as we look at the better priest. Looking again at your Bibles in Hebrews chapter 8, reading again the first five verses. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That is, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See, what, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain." So as we begin looking at these verses, if in the study of Hebrews at any time as we've gone through this line by line through this epistle, you have asked the question, what's the point? Hopefully you've taken some application each week, but here what is, is what's a blessing here is that the author of Hebrews clearly states it. Look how he starts off. He says, now the point in what we are saying is this. Isn't that great? Like, don't have to guess. Don't have to wonder, like, well, what, what's he getting at? Like, what, what's the point of what he is saying? Which, by the way, for any preacher, that is the job of the preacher, is to expound God's message from the text to God's people. It is not the message of the preacher. It is the message of God that is to be expounded. That is what we call expositional preaching. It is taking the message from God's word, and that is the main message of the sermon. Now, this is the preacher's dream because the work is done for us. He literally says, here's the point. And so we'll take that. He takes that point and he divides up as he makes this argument three different areas or reasons why Jesus is the better priest in these opening verses. He'll argue about his seat, his sacrifice, and his sanctuary. And so looking at verse 1, we'll see how he begins. The first reason is about Christ's seat. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, if you've been with us from the beginning of the study in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews began the study pointing to this very same thing. And we looked at the significance back in chapter 1 of Christ sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Back in the opening chapter of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, we read a most glorious description of Christ in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here the author brings that back up in chapter 8, pointing to Christ sat down. What he is doing again is he's contrasting the work of the Levitical priests in the Old Testament with the work of Christ. No earthly priest ever sat down while on duty. Why? Because they were still serving in the temple round and round offering sacrifices. And at the time of this writing, there were still those Levitical priests serving in the temple. That's why later in Hebrews chapter 10, we'll read in verse 11, Hebrews 10, 11, 
Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. There was no place in God's design in the tabernacle for a priest to sit down. In the Old Testament, God gave his divine blueprint to Moses for the tabernacle. In Exodus 25, through the remainder of Exodus, there is the design, the blueprint for it. But in Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, God tells Moses this. He says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. Well, guess what was absent in all that furniture? priest had no place to sit. And that was by design. That was what God intended. Why? Because that old covenant priest, his job was never done. They had to continually offer up sacrifices for themselves first and then for the people, which means they were never to sit down while on duty. But Jesus after making purification for sins, we read in that opening chapter of Hebrews, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now again, we can only appreciate the significance of this, of Jesus sitting down. Only if we understand that no earthly priest could sit down because they had to continually offer sacrifices. But Jesus after offering himself as the perfect sacrifice, sat down. We'll explain further and discuss and dig into deeper him being that perfect sacrifice. We'll see that shortly. But the point here is he sat down. And if he sat down, it means this, he got the job done. He got it done. The author, again, is contrasting the finished work of Christ with the unfinished work of the Levitical priesthood, of those priests. Their work was never finished. Their sacrifices were never sufficient. Their atonement was never final, but it all pointed to the one who was to come, the one who is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because Christ work is finished. The sacrifice of himself is sufficient to reconcile us to God, and his atonement takes away sin, our sin, forever. This is why he entered the heavenly sanctuary. He completed this sacrifice that was once for all, and then he sat down at the right hand to show it is finished, just as he said upon that cross. It is finished. You know, we take note here, as the author told us, where he sat down. He didn't sit down in some corner or some abstract area. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. The right hand being the position of great authority and great power, being a place of highest honor. In Psalm 110, verse 1, the psalmist writes, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You know, while on earth in his earthly ministry, Jesus applied that psalm to himself. In Luke 22, verse 69 Jesus said, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Jesus spoke of it being himself. He would be at the right hand of the Father. And so the author starts off here speaking of the better priest is first because of his better seat. Him sitting means the job is done. His place of city means he rules as king. But secondly, he says he's a better priest because of his sacrifice. Jump down to verse 3 with me in Hebrews chapter 8. 
We read in verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Again, I want you to keep in mind that as the author's going through this argument, he's contrasting the old covenant priests with our new covenant priest, Jesus. And so like the Levitical priests, Jesus also offered sacrifice. But Jesus is the better priest because his sacrifice was once for all. And unlike those earthly priests, as the holy, innocent, unstained priest, Jesus did not have to offer sacrifices for himself. And what did he offer up? What was his sacrifice? Was it the blood of a bull, the blood of a goat, the blood of a lamb? Jesus offered up his own holy, perfect life, and that was for us. He gave himself. It is the only sacrifice that can give us access to a holy God. Think of it, Christ upon that cross, suffering as he did for you and for me. For every single wicked attitude and action and word that we have ever committed. And though he was publicly shamed, mocked, ridiculed, our sovereign, sinless Savior remained upon that cross until he said those words, it is finished. Beloved, this is glorious news, and every time you hear it, it should put a smile on your face that it is done. Christ has paid our debt in full when he offered himself up once for all. His sacrifice fully satisfied the wrath of God that was being stored up against us. And thus, there is no more need for any more sacrifices. Jesus is the better priest because of his seat, because of his sacrifice, and as the author points in verses 4 and 5, and because of his sanctuary. I'm going to jump back into verse 2 as we jumped over a bit there. Go back to verse 2. In verse 2 we read, He's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now jump down to 4 and 5. We'll put them all together here. Down in verses 4 and 5. Now if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. You know, Jesus is the better priest, the author of Hebrews is arguing, because of where he serves as priest. He is in the holy places. He is in the presence of Almighty God, of the Father. He is in a place that is not built by human hands. It is the true tabernacle of God. And he is not an earthly priest. We've read previously that he has an indestructible life. And because of that, he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Look again with me at verse 5 where we read about these earthly priests that they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And he quotes Moses there from Exodus 25 verse 40. These earthly priests, these Levitical priests, they, they serve a copy and a shadow. But when Moses was up on that mountain, God gave him the divine blueprint for the tabernacle. And even in that perfect description of this earthly tabernacle, it was only a shadow of the real thing. It was a picture. Thus, the author of Hebrews here is arguing that the better priest, Christ, Christ, the better priest, he serves in the real thing, not in a shadow of it. He is in the holy places. 
His priesthood is in the true tabernacle, in the very presence of God. And because of that, beloved, as we studied last time, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He is able to save. The author clearly lays out in this opening here, he says, Jesus is the better priest because of his seat, because of his sacrifice, because of his sanctuary. But now he brings us to the remainder of his point when he says, here is the point. He's pointing to the better promises, the better promises of the new covenant. I want you to follow along as I read the rest of that chapter. We'll read from 6 through 13 once again. Starting in verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with, with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So as the author gets to this eighth chapter of Hebrews, he transitions all the focus on Christ because there is a new covenant in Christ. And he argues for Christ being that better priest. Don't go back to those earthly priests. He is the better priest. And in his covenant, there are better promises. And he summarizes his point here in verse 6 as he transitions to this part. He summarized that Jesus' ministry is superior because his covenant is superior. It has better promises. And so the first thing he does is he argues about uh, against the old covenant, saying if, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no reason for another covenant. And we have to be careful how we understand what he is saying here. What does he mean that God finds fault with that first covenant? I mean, it's God that made that covenant, and God is good. So what does he mean that the old covenant had a flaw. It obviously was not flawed in what was recorded and what was written in the law and the requirements of the law. We know that the law is good. The Apostle Paul affirms that in Romans 7, 12. He says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So what was it about the old covenant that had faults? Well, in short, it was inadequate. And as we say that, we must acknowledge that it served the exact purpose that God intended for it to serve. It is not that God made that covenant and went, whoops, that one's not going to work. It was all intended to point to Christ. And so there were three shortcomings about it being inadequate. The first shortcoming about the old covenant is that the sacrifices that were made by the priests could never fully take away sins and secure eternal forgiveness. They could never do that. We read this later in Hebrews chapter 10. If you want to flip over a page and follow along, we've looked at this in previous weeks. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
It all pointed to one who would come and live a sinless, perfect, holy life and be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The second shortcoming of the Old Covenant is that it was unable to supply the ability that people needed to fulfill it and obey it. The, the law of Moses was very clear in providing righteous instruction. We read things like, you shall not. And we read other things like, do this and live. We read, be holy. The problem was there was nothing in the law itself that could empower people to obey it. That was the second fault of the law. Again, intentional. To point the people to the coming Savior, the one who would rescue them, the one who would fulfill all righteousness on their behalf. The third shortcoming of the Old Covenant was that it was temporary. The author of Hebrews points that out here in verse 5, that everything Moses did in building the Old Covenant tabernacle, along with its rituals and its sacrifices, were only, as he says, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. You know, it was way before the author of Hebrews recorded this information that the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah recorded that God has always, always intended to establish a new covenant with his people. In Hebrews chapter 8, one of the longest quotes we have of the Old Testament, in verses 8 through 12, it is a quote from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And if you look down at verse 8 here in chapter 8 of Hebrews, we read the quote, and it begins, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Again, it wasn't a whoopsie, got to do something new. It was God's design from the very beginning. The old covenant was temporary. To make his point, to drive home that point about the old covenant being temporary, jump down to verse 13 in Hebrews 8. The author says, in speaking of a new covenant, he, speaking of God, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You know, it was when Jeremiah prophesied the coming of a new covenant in so doing, he was rendering the old covenant obsolete. It was ready to vanish away, as the author of Hebrews puts it. And so to quickly recap, the faults of the old covenant were that the priest's sacrifices were inadequate to secure eternal forgiveness. The law was unable to provide the ability to obey it. And the old covenant was temporary. But the new covenant where we'll focus the rest of our attention, the new covenant is founded on better promises. And as we transition there, it is important that we look down and see what we read in verse 8 here. As this quote begins from Jeremiah, God saying, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Um... Hmm. What about the New Testament church? What about us? Does this covenant that is written here apply to us, to Gentile believers? Or is it only for ethnic Jews? I want you to think about who was present, if you know, who was present in the upper room when Jesus inaugurated this new covenant. It's when he established the Lord's Supper as an ordinance of why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It was on that occasion that Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do you know who was in the room? There were Jews. Jews were in the room. All members of either the house of Israel or Judah Yet, the Apostle Paul quotes these very words of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
as he writes to the church, the church made of Gentiles and Jews, the church who are one in Christ. He writes to them in 1 Corinthians 11 about their responsibility to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the celebration of this new covenant in Christ. It is what we do as well. We celebrate this. Paul also in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, as we heard in the public reading this morning, says that we are ministers of this new covenant. And to the churches in Galatia, Paul writes in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Well, what does that mean? It means that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is now the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. In other words, every genuine believer in Christ is part of the true Israel of God. The church is made of ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles who believe in the same Lord. It is Christ who unites us together. And so if you are here this morning and you trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are a member of the new covenant. Now that we have that clarified, let's turn our attention to the better promises that are declared here. Again, this is quoting Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. The author will pick up in Hebrews 8 is quoting in verse 10. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Stop and pause for a moment. This was the promise that God gave to his people that he would establish a new covenant. And think about the blessedness of when we live now. That we get to be partakers and members of this covenant. That though they looked forward to it, we get to experience it. We get to experience the blessings that he declares here. There are four of them. He speaks of an internal power. He speaks of an intimate relationship. He speaks of saving knowledge. And he speaks of full and final forgiveness. So let's look at these blessings together. This first one, he speaks of internal power. Look again at verse 10 where God says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. You know, it was during the times of the old covenant that God's people and still God's people today, are to meditate upon God's word day and night. But in the old covenant, even if they were to memorize God's word by meditating on it and being diligent to seek it, they had no power to obey it. They could know it, but they were not enabled by the old covenant to obey what it said. But God here in this new covenant promises to write his law on our hearts. He's saying that our obedience will flow from a transformation that has occurred within us. And so God's better promise is that he will provide the power to obey all that he desires for us to do. What this means is that every member of the new covenant has been regenerated. They have the law of God placed in their minds, written on their hearts. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel recorded this promise of God. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, we read God speaking saying, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. 
Fred, if you are here and you're just trying to be a better person, you're like, man, I'm just here because I'm trying to get better. You're going under the old covenant. You're trying to follow rules that you cannot follow in your own strength. But in the new covenant that is in Christ, he gives you his very spirit to enable you to do the things that are according to his will. It is far greater. Every believer in Jesus Christ is a member of this new covenant. And God has inscribed on their hearts his will, and he's empowered them by his spirit. This is why you look into other people and you see a transformation in their lives. They were this, but now they're this. They were darkness, but now they're light. This is the work of God. All they cared about before was that unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. But now they're concerned about the goodness and the glory of God. Why? Because what he has done by putting this in their heart, giving them a new heart, and giving them his spirit, that is unlike what the old covenant did. The new covenant empowers us not only to desire to do God's will, but to actually do it. This is what comes through the, the new covenant. It is the first blessing that Jeremiah lists and the author of Hebrews quotes here. But the second blessing is an intimate relationship with God. We see again in verse 10, God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, just stop and think about that for a moment. The creator and sustainer of all things promises to be your God <laughs> and promises that he will have you as his chosen people. You know, he is not just the one true God. He is our one true God. He is your God and he is my God. He is not a God that is far off. He is a God who is near. That the God of all creation has chosen us to be his people should be one of the most humbling things to sit and to ponder and to think of. He has identified us as his own. Beloved, what that means is you are his. You are his. And all of you who are his will always be his. God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And he will always be present. He'll never allow anything in our lives or permit anything in our lives to sever us from his love. Nothing can separate us from that. God is intimately close to his people and he cares for them with a perfect love. This is the second blessing of the new covenant that God would be their people or be, God would be their God and they would be his people. But there's a third blessing. We see here that there is saving knowledge. That is the third blessing. Look to verse 11 with me. We read, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. You know, in the days of the Old Testament, the people of God were a mixed community. There were both believers and non-believers in Israel. Not everyone who was circumcised in his flesh was circumcised in his heart. Not everyone who received the physical sign of the old covenant were genuine believers. But on the contrary, every member of the new covenant is a genuine believer in Christ. Every member of the new covenant has been regenerated. They've been given a new heart. They've been given God's spirit. They've been born again by the spirit of God. That's why God says here in verse 11, they shall all know me 
from the least of them to the greatest. It means every member of the new covenant will experience personal and firsthand intimate saving knowledge of God. This is one of the reasons why we don't baptize infants. In Israel, all of those who were circumcised physically were members of the covenant community, whether they ever came to faith or not. But that's not true of the new covenant. Only those who come to saving faith are members of the new covenant community. And so those who promote paedo-baptism, the baptizing of infants. They argue that since in Old Testament times, circumcision as the sign of the covenant was applied to all, even though many never came to saving faith, they argue baptism as a sign of the new covenant should be applied to all, even though many who are baptized never come to saving faith. Speaking of infants. Thus they argue Baptism, as a sign in the new covenant, should be applied to everyone. Well, what do we learn from the scriptures? We know that unlike the Old Testament, everywhere in the New Testament, we read that members of the new covenant are born again, meaning they are justified believers in Jesus. <laughs> means they have personally responded to the gospel. By the grace of God, they have responded and turned to Christ in repentance and faith. And for everyone who turns to Christ, the New Testament declares and commands that they be baptized. Infants have not yet personally trusted Christ for salvation and are not members of the new covenant. And thus, we do not baptize infants. By the way, if you want to learn more about baptism or interested in being baptized, if we finish up here soon, we'll have a class at noon uh, in the library. So you're welcome to come join us then in the library. The blessings of the new covenant. We have seen they include an internal power to do God's will, to obey him. We see that the, one of the blessings of the new covenant is an intimate relationship with God and we just saw that it is also a saving knowledge of God. But lastly, and definitely not least, we see the blessing is full and final forgiveness. Look with me at verse 12. God declares, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. You know, under the old covenant, forgiveness was never final, it was never forever. One had to return year after year after year on the Day of Atonement to have sacrifices made on their behalf. But in the new covenant, established by the shedding of Christ's own blood, our sins are completely and forever forgiven. That means past, present, and future. They are paid for which means there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have complete forgiveness. Why? Because Christ has paid for all our sins. Beloved, this should bring us great joy. It is why we come and we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Luke records, speaking of Jesus, he says in Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, he says, and he, speaking of Jesus, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so as we gather this morning, we, or at times we gather for the Lord's Supper, each time that we come, we eat the bread that symbolizes his body and we drink of the cup that points to his blood. And in what we're doing, we are remembering, we are celebrating, we are experiencing all the blessings that are ours because of the new covenant in Christ. So the question I have for you is, are you a member of this new covenant that we just studied about?
Have you repented and trusted in Christ alone? If you have not, I have a simple question. What are you waiting for? There is no one else who can save you. It is Christ and it is him alone. And it is utter foolishness. It is a path of destruction to say, eh, I'm okay. I'm going to try it on my own. This is why the Father sent the Son to die a gruesome death on our behalf, that we might turn from sin and turn to Christ, that we might receive final and full forgiveness of sins because it is finished. Christ is seated. His work is done. And if you are a member of this new covenant, Know that the author of Hebrews is encouraging you to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. You have been washed in the blood. You are forever his. You're to rejoice in him. He is the better priest. His covenant has better promises. Beloved, you have been given his spirit to do his will. Do not overlook this. God's spirit within the believer is a mark that they are a genuine believer, that God has taken them from darkness and made them light, that there is transformation in them, that they have his spirit to now bring him glory. And it is one of the greatest blessings of the new covenant, that we can now enjoy God and glorify him forever. Beloved, glorify God with your life. If you are in Christ, you have been given the spirit of Christ to do just that. Say, what is my purpose? Why am I here? To bring glory to God. To live a life that is about him, a pursuit that is about him, a pursuit about exalting his name and not your own because he has redeemed you. He has given you life and that everlasting. And through the new covenant, you are capable of doing his will. Know that he is with us and our lives are to be delivered for his glory and his glory alone. Before I close in prayer, let's go ahead and bow our heads. Let's take a quiet moment to reflect on what God is ministering to our souls this morning through his word. All of the redeemed of God said, amen. Beloved, I'll close you with a benediction from this very letter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, you are the church. Spend time stirring up loving good works in each other, praying for each other, encouraging each other in the faith. If you are here this morning and you have more questions about Christ and the new covenant, I would be delighted to talk to you more about that. Uh, also, stay after for a time of refreshments. And those of you interested in learning more about baptism, 12 o'clock in the library, which is here shortly. God bless you, beloved.